Is uh, student growth route this week or next year? Okay. Choir practice at 7 and plan to stay overtime. We didn't get to practice this past week, so we got to be prepared for our cantata, which is Saturday, 6 o'clock. Uh, looking forward to it. Hope we have a good crowd. Remember our service next Sunday. It will be an abbreviated service. We will not have Sunday school. Uh, we'll have church service at 1030. So be prepared for that. Uh, looking forward to it. Hopefully we'll have a church full that day. Also today, we're going to do our capital fund. This is the third Sunday. We normally do it on the fourth Sunday, but it, with next Sunday being Christmas, we may not have that many, so we're going to do it today. And I have a letter here from Mount Pleasant Food Ministry. I'd like to express their deepest appreciation for our recent generation donation of $1,525, uh, which come from the missionary sale that we split up between groups. So, uh, again... They thank you, and as always, they need our support. Any other announcements? Remember your mailbox. Check your cards. There's a lot of people that still got a lot of cards back there, and I've seen a lot being placed today. So remember to get your Christmas cards before Christmas. Any other announcements? not, I'm going to open us up, read from Psalms, Psalm 11. David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can I, you save my soul? Feel like a bird to your mouth. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the stream. They shoot at the dark, at the upright in the heart. And the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in the holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteousness, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur, a scorching wind, shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteousness. He loves righteous deeds. Upright shall behold his face. The flowers, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains true. Let's all stand and sing our first hymn, hymn 185. Hark the herald angels sing.
time. We like to recite the Apostles' Creed. We do this because it's what we believe. Church, what do we believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Christmas. How's everybody doing today? It is a wonderful time. Looking forward to the celebration of Jesus' birth. Uh, we've had a, a wonderful year this year, and it'll be a great way to top off our year. Um, done a lot of great things with our capital fund. Uh, necessary things, things that have just improved and made us more wonderful for uh, our amenities and things around. Uh, refresh some things, like painting of the interior of the sanctuary here. So it certainly is appreciated what you guys donate and give uh, to the capital fund. Uh, if you're not prepared for the capital fund this morning, that is fine. Um, just mark on a check or something next Sunday if that's your, you're used to it, and just put capital fund, and it will get put into that without any problems. So we certainly do appreciate that. Uh, looking forward to a wonderful new year. I might be a little ahead of games of things, but uh, I just kind of want to, you know, We've done a lot this past year, but you know, looking forward to some new stuff and, and new things uh, in the upcoming year that we might be able to do to continue to refresh, uh, whether it's a sanctuary or, or any other things. Uh, of our wonderful facilities that we have here that the Lord has blessed us with to be able to have and to be able to worship in and be a part of and help out always. So, uh, shake a few pennies loose here at the end of the year, and uh, let's put them into the capital fund. Thank you.
gather around the Advent candles. for me. We're reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those who with whom he is pleased. All right. So this today's candle is a candle focused on the angels and on love. The past few weeks, we have learned about candles of hope and peace and joy, and today is love. That one will be for next Sunday. That will be the Christmas candle. We can sit down. The passage that Eddie read in Luke about the angels coming and talking to the shepherds, what can you think about from that passage of Scripture is loving? What do you think is loving about that passage of Scripture? fact that the angels came, right? That God sent the angels to share the message that who, that, that what? What was the message? What did he say? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They brought the message that Jesus had been born. The good news. They were God's messengers. God sent them to share this exciting, good, and happy news. And that was loving of God to do that. Without those angels coming to talk to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, our Christmas story would be a whole lot different. It just wouldn't be the same. Maybe people wouldn't even know that God had been born as a baby, right? And we wouldn't know the good news. And so can someone tell me, someone tell me if you know what John 3.16 says. I'll start it out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, 
right? That's the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus. He sent sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. And that is the good news of Christmas. And the good news that we have for every single day. And just like the angels, because the angels sent us God's message, and we have God's word, the Bible, we can be like the angels and be messengers too. We, we can be God's messengers of sharing this good news that we have about Jesus. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today. Thank you that we can celebrate you. We can think about you. We can be excited about Christmas. Be excited to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Will you help us today to worship you in truth and in spirit and to be excited every day about Jesus coming to save us from our sins and coming as a baby, coming like us the same way we did into this world. We love you and we thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sing our second hymn, 186.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. We will be finishing our Advent series this morning and looking at the last chapter of Ruth, concluding this beautiful love story that we have have spent uh, the last three weeks studying together. And it has been a a good study. I I thought about doing a, a recap of what we have seen so far in in Ruth and what has led us to chapter 4. But, you know, looking at my notes this morning, I decided against it, and I'm glad I did. Uh, We could easily spend three weeks here in chapter 4 of Ruth. Uh, There's so much to to just dive into and and sit in and meditate on, and and so many many ways that that Ruth 4 just speaks to us. But if I could simplify the, the overall message of Ruth 4 in just a one simple statement, I would actually use the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, Ruth is a story. If you've been with us over the last three weeks or, or not, Ruth is a story where God is active in only two very short moments throughout this whole story. We see him visit the, the people of Israel and end the famine in chapter 1. And then we see him give Ruth and Boaz conception and, and give them a child in, here in chapter 4. And so for most of the book, God seems to be very absent, very distant, hiding in the background. But of course, we, we know that he's not. We know that he is working behind the scenes and pulling strings and and orchestrating and ordaining things in both Ruth and Boaz's life. So Ruth and Boaz and Naomi know that God is not absent, he is not distant, and though they cannot see him, they know that he is near. And so when God seems far away, these three, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these three, as we've seen, they have set themselves to seek God first, to do what God has, has commanded them to do, in his law, to trust that the rest of it will be handled by him. And, and this is what they do. That's what, that's what I want to show you this morning as we study this fourth and final chapter of Ruth. I want you to see how, how Ruth and Naomi and Boaz seek God first. That they did what God had commanded them to do. And then all the while they trusted that God would handle the rest of it. And so divided, to divide it up a little bit as we jump into this passage, there's, there's really just three, three scenes, three locations that I, I want us to focus on. There's, there's a scene at the city gate, there's a scene at the altar for their wedding, and there's a scene in town with the women. And so as we come to God's word, let us see then how, how these three seek God first and how God ultimately works it out for their good. Look with me at Ruth chapter 4 beginning in verse, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say that buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to see. Help us to know. Help us to believe. And I pray that as as we study your word, that our lives would be changed and molded and conformed and transformed by it. That we would no longer be who we once were. That by your spirit and by your word, because of your gospel, we who believe would be changed. Give us life through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. We'll just jump right into it here. Scene number one, at the gate. We have seeking, we have Boaz here seeking God first in his business. Here at the gate, we see Boaz seeking God first in business. And three, three things I, I want you to see Boaz do. First, he does what he says he's going to do. He does what he says he's going to do. And so should we. 
If you remember from last week, chapter 3 ends with Boaz, uh, Boaz and Ruth there on the threshing floor in this verging on scandalous night. And, and Boaz, the, the morning ends with Boaz sending Ruth home with 95 more pounds of barley and, and says, hey, there's a redeemer, but I'll take care of it. And so he wakes up. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't wait for anything to, else to happen. That same morning that he sends Ruth home, Boaz heads straight to the city gate. Doesn't go home, doesn't get showered, doesn't get business and affairs. He, he heads straight to the city gate so that he can be there as the men of the town are leaving first thing in the morning to go out to work and to work their fields. And so he goes, and we have a, a sort of another instance of something that we've seen in Ruth so far. There in verse 1, the ESV says, And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And what we've seen it translated in other places in Ruth is, And it just so happened. These, these just-so-happened coincidences that aren't really coincidences are showing us that, once again, God is in the backgrounds directing the events. Boaz gets to the gate, he sits down, and as soon as he's ready, the man that he's looking for and waiting for just so happens to walk by. And, you know, we get into this, this court scene here at the city gate, and it's, it's worth pointing out the, the direct and immediate action on Boaz's part. He doesn't procrastinate, does he? He doesn't wait around. He doesn't put it off until tomorrow. But he knows that Ruth and Naomi are depending on him. That this matter is of great importance to them, and so it should matter a great deal to him, and he settles it. Since he said that he would take care of it today, he takes care of it today. You know, I speak to you as a procrastinator myself, and Boaz stands in stark contrast to my own life. If it can be done tomorrow, it'll get done tomorrow. And it's so easy to put things off and to get to it later, to wait. But Boaz here stands as this, this role model for us that Boaz said he was going to do something, and then he went and did it. And I think it's important for us to, to understand that procrastination is just another name for laziness. That we, we need to be men and women of our word and to do what we're going to say we do to do it when we say we'll do it. Second thing to see in, in Boaz is that he does what's right. He, he does what he says he's going to do, and then he does what's right. You know, you can't, you can't overlook the previous night's events when you consider what takes place the following morning. There are Boaz and Ruth asleep on the threshing floor side by side, agreeing to get married, and yet remaining sexually pure. You know, we looked last week at this, and, and I, I pointed out again to you here, because this court scene is, is a, another glimpse into the character of this couple. You see, God had provided the law of Levirate marriage to, to protect the vulnerable, to continue on the family line should death seek to end it. And Boaz is a redeemer, and Ruth needs redemption, and they could have bypassed all of this legal red tape. That very night, but this would have violated God's law and it would have cast a shadow over their marriage. So both Ruth and Boaz do what is right in every capacity. And it's easy for us to read this and say, well, that was that's ancient Palestine. Like times are so much different back then. This never would have happened today. And you can't expect it to be applicable today. But again, let me point to you, point out to you how the book of Ruth begins. In the time of the judges. 
when there was no king in Israel. You know, if you were to to start, the new year's coming, and so typically I know that many of us like to at least begin with high hopes, that Bible reading plan for the for the year. And if you are fortunate enough or disciplined enough, I should say, to make it through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, eventually you will get to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, if you're reading the Bible together as a family, the book of Judges is going to make anyone uncomfortable to read it to their kids. It is filled with some of the foulest and darkest moments, not only of Israel's history, but in all of Scripture. I mean, Judges 19, I can't get into, I won't get into the details of it, but you read that, and it is a, it is, wow. And you realize that this is Israel taking place in these dark and heinous events. And then you put this in the, in the light, the fact that Boaz and Ruth live in Israel during this time. And yet, when you just read the book of Ruth, you don't see any stain, any shadow, any scent or whiff of this stain of sin in their culture. Because both Ruth and Boaz live completely above it. They live, as Paul says in in Romans 12, they live as people who are not conformed any longer to the patterns of the world, but are transformed by the renewal of their minds. That by testing, they are able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. See, doing what's right means that our lives are molded not by what our world says is right, not by what our hearts say is right, not by what we think is permissible or acceptable by any other standard except what God's Word has given. Doing what's right means discerning from Scripture what God has said is right and then being transformed by His Spirit to go and do it. So let us be people who do what we say we're going to do, but also people who do what is right whether it be in business or in relationships or at home, all of it. We define the right solely by God's Word, solely by His standard of righteousness and not by anything else. Third thing that we see here in this courtroom scene is Boaz concerns himself with the only name that matters. Concern yourself with the only name that matters. Boaz tells the the Redeemer that Elimelech's widow, Naomi, is selling the land. And it needs to be bought by a kinsman Redeemer and that this fellow is first in line. And if you've been reading the the book of of Ruth, you you kind of, I hope, if you allow yourself to be caught up in a story. You've at this point in the story been caught up in the Ruth and Boaz relationship. Your hearts are pulling for them. You're cheering for them to to work out. You're cheering for this marriage. You're anticipating that day. And then this stranger steps in and says, I'll redeem it. I'll be the redeemer. And you look at Boaz and you say, what are you doing? It's supposed to be Ruth and Boaz, not Ruth and this guy. Like, stop telling him about Naomi. Why are you allowing this man? Why can't you just tell him that you love Ruth and that you're meant to be together? Our hearts kind of sink a little bit when we hear this other Redeemer say, I'll take care of it. But Boaz here playing his cards close to his chest. You can almost see the, the, the wit, the, the intelligence in Boaz and the way that he presents it to the Redeemer. Because he presents the land first. Hey, there's land for sale. It's yours if you want it. 
And the guy says, sure, I'll take it. But then Boaz mentions that, well, hang on just a minute. Because if you buy this land, you must also marry and father children with Ruth. You see, to redeem the land, you must redeem the widow. And that means not only marriage, but children. It means another family to feed and provide for and care for. And this is where the, we see, actually, the true character of this other redeemer is revealed. You see, look at, look at verse 6. It says, Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let me just point out a couple things here. First, the reason he says no to this whole redeeming thing is only because of his own inheritance. Marrying Ruth, having children with her would, as he puts it, impair his own inheritance. It would mean that what he has built for his children and his children's children and his children's children's children would be tarnished because now it would have to be split with any other children that he has with Ruth. He would have to provide for a second family from out of his own pocket. And it's interesting when you compare this response with all that we've already seen Boaz do for Ruth. I mean, at this point in the story, Boaz has already given Ruth and Naomi over a hundred pounds of barley. And this man says, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give them anything. This is my stuff. And then we see what happens next. We get this little insert from, from the author of Ruth about this sandal thing and the process and, and how the Redeemer takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. And, and this sandal kind of works like a point of sale. It's, it's Boaz's receipt, as it were. And I can't imagine what, what kind of receipt process would look like if we still did this today. Maybe, maybe our closets wouldn't be so full, but, but maybe that's a, a different point for another day. But, you know, the, the author of Ruth, while he, he gives us this explanation about the sandals, whoever it is that, that wrote this book doesn't give us the full picture. You know, I mentioned last week that Deuteronomy 25 would be a great passage to read this week as homework and, and preparation for this. If you did it, great. But if not, if you go back and read, Deuteronomy 25 is the section in God's law that outlines this process, how to redeem, what that looks like. And in Deuteronomy 25, it actually gives a caveat. What happens if the Redeemer decides not to redeem? And there in Deuteronomy 25, it actually says for the woman, for the widow who is in need of redemption, who is likely sitting in the courtroom scene when all of this is taking place, and the man says, I cannot redeem, I will not redeem, that woman in need of redemption is to go to that man and take off his sandal, not receive it, but to take it off of him, to spit in his face and curse him. That his name would be tarnished throughout all of Israel and that he would forever be known as the one who refused to redeem. Doing what this man does in Ruth 4 is a shameful thing to do. You know, we don't get the full spit scene here. Ruth isn't there spitting in anyone's face. But I do believe the result of it is the same. This man is, is more concerned with his own inheritance, really his own namesake, that he refused to carry the burden of someone in need. 
He didn't want his name to suffer. And the irony is, we don't even know his name, do we? Nowhere in this book are we given his name. In fact, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, the, the, the author of Ruth just calls him Mr. So-and-so. Or the ESV version that I read, is it translates it as friend, which I think is a little nicer than Mr. So-and-so. Personally, my favorite is the Hebrew expression that is there is Poloni Almoni. It's a great, great name. But it's kind of like our English equivalent of Helter Skelter or Hodgepodge. You put two words together that really by themselves don't mean anything, but they rhyme, and so you put them together and they mean something. I don't have much hodge lying around my basement, but I assure you I have a lot of hodgepodge in my basement. Poloni Almoni really literally translates as Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Nobody, Guy. A man so concerned with his own name that it ends up being forgotten altogether. Isn't that how it goes, though? You see, when we become so focused on making a name for ourselves and making sure that our name is never forgotten, that our family name lives on in future generations, we will find, unfortunately, sadly, ironically, that our name really only makes it so far. But you see, when we do what we say we're going to do, when we do what is right in God's eyes, and when we focus on the only name that matters, His name, then all the rest gets sorted out. You see, the question then that we should take away from this courtroom scene is, at the end of the day, when you are long gone from this world, whose name would you rather people remember more? Yours or your Savior's? Seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, All these things will be added unto you. That's the courtroom scene at the gate. The second scene that I want to point your attention to is at the altar. Seeking God first in dating and marriage. See, if you were to turn this short story of Scripture, the book of Ruth, into a movie, I would imagine that the end of the movie, right before the credits roll, would be this fairy tale, dream-like fantasy wedding where Boaz is standing there at the altar in his suit and tie, all dressed up to the nines, and and he turns and tears start streaming down his face as Ruth walks down the aisle, Naomi giving her away in her flowing white dress. And this beautiful love story is is ended and and, and brought to this beautiful close. You don't really get that in the book, do you? I mean, in fact, the the wedding scene is is summed up in, in one simple statement. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. That's it. That's the wedding. Never has the first. And then we get, it continues. It says, he went into her. The Lord gave her conception. She got a son. Never has the first year of any marriage been summed up so simply. But yet, there's something so beautiful about this whole ordeal. You know, I think if we go back and we reread this book of Ruth with and put on this, this lens of, courtship and dating and marriage. I think we'd come away with a picture of marriage, a picture of, uh, of dating relationships that look so different from what we typically think that a marriage and a dating relationship is or should be. 
In fact, I think that if you just take away this, this chapter 4, if you just look at chapter 4, there are four pieces of advice that Ruth and Boaz give us in regards to our dating and marriage relationship. And so whether you are single, married, or engaged, let Ruth 4 sort of broaden us and challenge us a little bit. First, marry with purpose. Marry with purpose. See, the first question I always ask engaged couples when they come to me for, for premarital counseling, first question that's always asked is, why do you want to get married? And you'd be surprised at how put off by that question every engaged couple is. The guy just sort of stands there and, and stares at you going, she said yes, I'm not questioning anything. Like, Why are you asking these questions? And the girl then sits there and stares and goes, well, wait a minute, I haven't really thought about that. Is he really the best that I can do? Should I get married to him? I, hmm. and, and, and I think that I, I asked this question, and I think it should be asked, because we must know that marriage always has a purpose. There's always a reason to get married. And let me assure you that it is more than because we love each other. Why did, why did Boaz want to marry Ruth? And, and vice versa, why did Ruth want to marry Boaz? I assure you, it's, it's more than because we love each other. In fact, Boaz tells us in verse 10, I have bought Ruth to be my wife. Why? To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Not exactly an all moment, but it's true. Ruth and Boaz get married for the purpose of continuing on the name of Elimelech. That's the reason they married. And while you won't find that same reason for marriage today, if an engaged couple comes to me and I ask them, why do you want to get married? And they say, to perpetuate the name of the dead among the living. I'd be a little put off by that. But I think we still need to understand that every successful, enduring marriage always has a bigger purpose. A purpose that exists outside of the relationship between a husband and wife. You see, the reason why we get married today is very clear from Scripture. Marriage serves as a picture of the gospel. It serves as a picture of what Christ has done and what Christ will do. Marriage shows the beauty of a loving submission between a husband and a wife together. This faithful covenant love in marriage reflecting the faithful covenant love of God for us. Why do you want to get married or stay married or, or be married? The answer to that question, church, is to show the world how great and how faithful and how powerful and wonderful the love of God truly is. To get married means that it, the reason why we should get married and the reason why we should stay married it's because I want to love someone else the way that God loves me. And I want to be loved by someone else the way that God loves me. That's the reason you get married. And hear me on this. You, I, we need purpose in our marriages today. If you are single and you are looking for marriage, whether now or in the distant future, first question you should be asking of a boyfriend or a girlfriend before you accept any proposal, before you walk any aisles, the 
first question you should be asking and answering is, can a marriage with this person reflect God's love for me? If you are married, I think you need to be asking both yourself and your spouse, does our marriage still have this purpose? Are we fulfilling this God-given purpose in our marriage? Do people look at our marriage and see the love of Christ for His church? You see, the beauty of having a purpose in marriage is that when your marriage gets hard, when the days get long, when you cannot stand to be in the same room as that person lying next to you in bed, when that spark fades, when the romance seems to die, remembering this purpose Remembering the reason why you got married and why you are married and why you will continue to be married. Remembering that purpose is what sustains. So marry with purpose. Second thing that Ruth and Boaz teach us in marriage. Marry in love. Marry in love. Obviously, we can't ignore the fact that Ruth and Boaz shared a love for one another. Boaz doesn't, he he, he isn't generous without love. And Boaz loves Ruth, and Ruth loves Boaz, and this love just sort of shines off of these pages for one another. But it's not the kind of love that we typically think of when we think love. This isn't a Hallmark movie. Their love is different. Boaz loves Ruth by providing for her, by protecting her, by dealing with Mr. Poloni Almoni for her, all because he loves her. And it is his love for her that drives him to act in this way. Ruth lays down at Boaz's feet there on the threshing floor in submission to him because she loves him and respects him. These two show us that that this love between a husband and a wife is an active love. It's not simply an emotional or a sexual attraction to one another. Love is this willingness to lay down everything, finances, dreams, ambitions, plans for the future, all of it, to lay it all down for the good of someone else. See, a healthy marriage is built on this kind of active, sacrificial love. A love that puts the other person first in all things and in all ways and in all aspects of life. I was thinking about this this week, and, and you know, Paige and I celebrate 10 years of marriage here in just a couple of weeks. And, and marriage marriage will teach you a lot about yourself. You know, one thing I, I have learned from day one of, that, of this marriage, all the way until today, and I will continue seeing this and learning this, I'm convinced, for the rest of my life. The most important lesson that marriage has taught me is that I am the most selfish person I know. I know that marriage and my relationship to my wife calls me to be unselfish. And at every turn and at every day and at every moment of my marriage with Paige, I don't want to give up my stuff. My time, my plans, my dreams, what I want to do is what I want to do. And I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to submit. I don't want to give up my plans and my desires so that she can get her way. And she's the same with me. I love my wife. Don't don't get me wrong. But most days, I just love myself more. 
And marriage is this lifelong promise to my wife that I'm going to love her more than I love myself. And that is a promise, quite frankly, that I'm unable to keep on my own. And I'm sure many of you, if you're married, you know this to be true. But in every marriage, God enables and he empowers husbands and wives to lay themselves down in love of their spouse. And the beauty of this is that the more that I love my wife, the more that I care for her, the more that I lay myself down so that she will be better, the better off I am. Paul says it very clearly in Ephesians 5. He who loves his wife loves himself. Marry in love, stay married in love. Number three, marry in communal blessing. Marry in communal blessing. You see, no wedding takes place, even today, no wedding takes place without witnesses. Because no marriage exists in a vacuum. Every wedding and every marriage lives within a community of some sort. As it should be. You'll notice the the blessing of the elders at the gate in verse 11. Boaz turns and he says, you're witnesses, you've seen this this transaction take place. And they respond and say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. May you act, or who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, for the sake of time, can't get into the, the... full specifics of this blessing and these names that are mentioned consider it homework for the week go find out who Perez and Tamar and Rachel and Leah were and read about them let me just say this about this point here your community matters a great deal to your marriage if you are single and you are pursuing marriage you need the advice and counsel and yes even the approval of your community before you get married. If you have someone that you want to marry, the best thing that you can do is ask the people who love you most of their opinions on this marriage. If they give their blessing, go for it. Don't wait. Just go. Go get married. But if they have reservations, and if they think this is a bad idea, don't be stubborn and ignore it. Because they love you. If you're married, what does your community say about your marriage? Do they pray blessings over you? Are they concerned? Or do they even know what happens within the walls of your own home? They should. Your marriage is not isolated from your community. And your community exists for the good of your marriage. To bless you, to pray for you, to encourage you, to build you up, and to help you when marriage gets hard. Marry in communal blessing. Live in marriage in this communal blessing. Lastly, marry, then consummate. Marry, then consummate. I've mentioned this a few times throughout this study of Ruth, so I won't stay long here. But the biblical pattern of marriage is not, excuse me, the biblical pattern of marriage is to get married and then consummate the marriage, not vice versa. Sex comes after the wedding vows. 
And that's a good thing. See, there's nothing, there's nothing more exposing than sex in a relationship. In this intimate time between a, a man and a woman, there's a time of exposure and vulnerability. I mean, there's a reason when we read Genesis 3 and we see Adam and Eve realizing they're naked, the first thing they do is they realize we're vulnerable here. We are exposed here. There's nothing hiding anything. And that is what a sexual relationship is. It is exposing. You are willingly opening yourself up to be hurt, to be susceptible to damage, to be vulnerable. And this is why I believe that God intended sex to be only reserved for people who are living within this marital vow, this covenant. Because the covenant protects the vulnerable. Within the covenant of marriage, a husband and a wife can be completely exposed and completely vulnerable, completely at risk of being hurt. And at the same time, no, because the covenant is there, I'm safe. He will protect me, she will protect me, and I don't have to be afraid of getting hurt. Because the covenant exists to protect. So if you're single, sex is not for you. And I know that might be hard for you to hear, but it's true. It is not for you. It's not yours to have. So wait. Wait so that you will be protected when you are vulnerable. If you are married, to flip the coin a little bit, if you are married, sex is no longer an option for you. It's a command. And it might surprise you to hear this, but but I want you to hear it anyway. If you are married and you are not actively having sex with your spouse on a regular basis, you are living in sin. It is biblically wrong for you to withhold yourself from your spouse. You know, as a, as a young unmarried man, to, to have the idea that someone would have to convince me, to command me as a married man, that you have to have sex would have been absurd. Why would you have to tell anyone that? What husband's going to have to be reminded that you need to do this? And yet as a married man, I get it. There's always something that gets in the way. There's always some stress, some burden, some task, some emergency, something that's going to stop the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And this is a dangerous road to live on. And your marriage will suffer the longer you go without being intimate together. God commands it, church. If you are married, obey the command. Marry, then consummate, and keep consummating. Ruth and Boaz's wedding might have been simple, but their, their, their example here is a challenge to our marriages, both present and future. God has given us clear and explicit commands regarding marriage, and, and I, I want us to honor him in this pursuit. You want a happy, fulfilling, long-lasting marriage? Seek him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
Last scene, quickly. I know I'm running out of time. I'll be quick here. In the town. This last scene. God, God working all things for his good and, and for the glory of his name. You see, the story of Ruth is this wonderful story of, of God working behind the scenes for the good of his people, for the good of these two widows. But it's about so much more than Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. This is a book given to us in God's word to show us how God works and why God works in the ways that he does. Ruth and Boaz, you see, have a son, and they name him Obed. And what's crazy is that the blessing that this child brings is not confined to the parents of Obed. In fact, the focus of the end of Ruth is on the blessing that this newborn brings, not to mom and dad, but to grandma, to Naomi. Grandmothers, you, you know this feeling better than anything that I can state or explain here. You, reading Ruth 4, can feel the joy on Naomi's face because you've had that same joy. I mean, parents are great. Grandparents? Grandparents are special. And no one, no one shows off a newborn baby better than a grandmother. Look at the blessing of these women just to see what God has done. It's in verse 14. They turn to Naomi. These same women who Naomi said, call me bitter in the beginning of this story. Now these women are gathered around Naomi as she's holding a newborn baby on her lap. And they say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer, Naomi. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Three. They they mention three things that God has done in Obed for Naomi. God fills the emptiness. Naomi, chapter 1 ends with Naomi telling these same women not to call her Naomi because Naomi means pleasant one, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Because I went away full, she says. I left Bethlehem with full hands and with full hearts, and God has brought me back empty. But here we see God filling the emptiness of Naomi. This is what God does. He takes empty people and he fills them. Or as Boaz told Ruth that morning after the threshing floor, your empty days are over. Second thing that these women point to is that God redeems the dead. He redeems the dead. God did not allow the name of Elimelech to perish, but he redeemed his name through the redemption of his wife. And he redeems them all through the birth of a child. You notice how the women say that God provided a redeemer to Naomi, but that the redeemer isn't Boaz. I mean, this whole story, Boaz is the redeemer. Boaz is the redeemer. He's the guy who's going to save Ruth and Naomi. And here at the end, the redeemer is a newborn. It's this child that redeems Naomi. Lastly, God, they say that God nourishes life. And again, I'll let the grandmother speak to this. How much life does holding a newborn grandchild give? You can go from the day before feeling your age and feeling the aches and the groans in your joints and in your bones and in your muscles, and at the very next day, your son or your daughter placed that newborn baby into your lap 
How much youthfulness do you feel? How much nourishment to your soul does that child get? And all of this comes to both Naomi and to you, to us, from the hand of the Lord. Because this is what he does. He nourishes life, even in old age. God does all of this. He does all of this through the birth of a child. But you see, the book of Ruth is about more than Obed. And the way that this book ends proves that point. For as climactic as Obed's birth is, you would think that the scripture somewhere would give us some detail about what happens to this kid. This is the only thing that we know about Obed's life. Is that he was born to Ruth and Boaz, and that he eventually gives birth to Jesse, who eventually gives birth to David. That's it. What matters most about Obed's life is his birth and who he gives birth to. Because Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, and David ultimately is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. The story of Ruth shows the great blessings of redemption that God can do through the birth of a child. And I cannot think of any greater message for us to hear than this, especially the week of Christmas. God redeems through the birth of a child. You know, what makes Christmas so special every year is not the presents, it's not the family time, the songs, the decorations. And what makes Christmas special is that God uses, once again, the birth of a child to bring about redemption. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption, yes, but it's only a foretaste. It's only a small sampling of what he's going to do later. God used the birth of Obed to fill the emptiness of Naomi. How much greater does the birth of Jesus fill our emptiness? God used the birth of Obed to redeem the name of the dead. How much greater does the birth of Jesus redeem the dead? God used the birth of Obed to nourish the life of Naomi in her old age. How much greater does the birth of Jesus nourish life? This Christmas church, I want you to remember the story of Ruth. You may have days where God feels far away from you, where you cannot see him or hear him or notice anything that he's doing, and yet he is there working in and through you to bring about good. You may, you will, let me just say, you will have days of emptiness. God fills the emptiness. You may have days where death seems powerful, and death seems to be the dominating thing in your life, and yet, death has been defeated because Jesus has been born. You may have days when you feel drained, and yet God nourishes you in Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Merry Christmas. God be praised for all he has done, all he is doing, and all he will do. Pray with me. Christ, we thank you for coming, for giving us this season that we can celebrate the birth of our child of redemption. Nourish our life. Redeem us from the dead. Save us. Fill us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's word as we...
conclude our service this morning by taking communion together. Ron is at the back. If you just raise your hand, he'll bring, bring the elements to you. You know, as the, as the birth of Obed was but a, a foretaste of the birth of Christ and the redemption that that child brings, this table is but a foretaste of what's to come. It is a small little, can't even call this a snack, can you? My kids certainly wouldn't. And yet at the same time, it points us to a feast, a wedding feast, that will come one day. Church, as you and I come to this table, we come as believers. We come as as people who believe in this child of redemption. And that the baby that was born in a manger died on a cross at Calvary for our sins and in our place. And if you believe that, then you are welcome to this table. If you do not believe that, don't take what is simply a taste, what is simply a snack, but take the real thing, which will fill your empty heart, which will redeem you from the dead, and which will nourish your life completely. Christian, remember what Christ has done the body of Christ broken for you. The day will come and will come soon when we will lift up this cup and sitting across the table from us will be Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Obed. And we will sit around this table and lift up this cup And together with one voice, praise the King. To the King. Our last song this morning is hymn number 182. O come, all ye faithful. Please stand and sing.
Christmas Eve is a, a great time for us as a church to gather, to celebrate Christmas together. And one bit of good news is that I am not preaching. So I can assure you it will be a shorter service. But this, this Saturday night, our choir has been working on a cantata. There will be, we will worship together. We will sing together. It will be a time of worship and praise and preparation for Christmas Day. Christmas Day, we will gather together and again have a, a promise, a shorter service. And so you can come in your Christmas pajamas, if you would like, and come and, and celebrate and worship together with, with us. But as we end this morning, let us say the Great Commission uh, together aloud. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace, church. Merry Christmas.